Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, November 28, 2017, and we have so, so much show for you this week. Uh, We just finished the Thanksgiving holiday a few days off. We're like fat and content, like little kittens licking ourselves in the sunlight. And our guest artist is a person who wants to have fun. And oh my God, I can't wait to get started. So I'm just going to be quiet now and let this song speak for me because this is exactly how I feel.
we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Cindy Lauper with um, Girls Just Want to Have Fun from She's So Unusual from, I think, 1983 or 1984. Hey, am I supposed to remember everything that happened in the 80s? I don't think so. But that's actually one of my most fun songs of all time. And so is our guest artist this week. Oh, my God. We have so much show for you this week, so um, we are just going to get right to it. We have a fantastic guest artist for you. Very excited to kick off this, um, uh, well, I was going to say new season, but there's no more seasons on Radio Free Brooklyn. It's all just like one long extended thing. But um, yeah, I'm celebrating uh, a year that I've been doing the show. Last week, I had my anniversary show at the Footlight Bar with a slew of fantastic performers and it went fantastic and now we're on to the next isn't that something it's always the next thing and the next thing starts right now with this song picked by our guest artist this week for their interview So slashed and torn.
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Queen featuring David Bowie. The song is called Under Pressure, and it's from Queen's Hot Space album back in 1982. The late, great Freddie Mercury and the late, great David Bowie. Oh my God, I can't believe it's almost a year that, that he's left the planet. Such a great song. It's been covered by a bunch of people, but, you know, sometimes originals are best. And speaking of originals... We have a totally original, iconoclastic, amazing guest artist for you this week. So now, it's time for my favorite part of the show. Everybody. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. Woohoo! When you are hearing this, I probably will have been doing this show exactly a year. Isn't that crazy? I had no clue how to do a radio show when I first started. And some of you listening might say, she still has no clue. But I don't care, because I am still doing it. DIY, guys, DIY. All right, enough about me. I'm sitting here with one of my favorite storytelling performers. And yes, every week, if you're a regular listener, you're going to be like, geez, every week it's Michelle's favorite. But it's true. Everybody's my favorite. And here's one of my most favorite humans. <coughs> Drum roll, please. Dun, 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 dun. Sandy Marks. Yay. I'm so happy. I'm one of your favorites. Yeah. I'm, I'm so thrilled to be here. Um, Thank you. Yeah, this is just so exciting. And I think that it's a thrill that you consider me to be one of your favorites because you are one of my favorites. Oh, so it's just it's like favorites, the top of favorites yes, here. Yes, it's a fan club, it's mutual a fa- fan club. Well, here we are continuing. Well, a lucky me. Yes, yes. No, lucky fish out of agua <laughs> listeners because I cannot wait to hear your story. Oh, so okay. here's the thing that we, that we start off with. How and where did we meet? I'm pretty sure one of our first real meets was at our mutual friend Julie's house. Oh, yes, Julie Throkel from Modern Stories, the website and calendar. That's right, and she's also one of my favorite storytellers because her take on everything is so special and sort of low-key. You have to really listen for it, but she really lands it. And every time I hear her tell a story, I'm always thinking, oh, my God, I love this woman. And the two of us were lucky enough to do a podcast together in her home. I believe it was in Yonkers. And we had the most wonderful evening spent in her little booth and drinking wine and eating snacks and just hanging out and listening to each other as we recorded our stories. And uh, I think that's when we really bonded, uh, hearing each other tell our long tales that night. That's right. But yeah, I guess that was when we became friends because we had, I had seen you around, like I, like you just appeared in my life, Sandy. Isn't that crazy? It's, it's, like, it's like one day I was like, oh yeah, sh- hi, she's here. So I love it. And I think I we it. also bonded because one day you saw me perform in my uterus sweater. Yes. And you said, I need that and I am happy to report that you have it and I happen to be wearing it even though your listeners don't know that you're wearing it right now. I am wearing a uterus sweater on the air. Am I allowed to do that? Sure. This is internet radio. I can do whatever I want. Yay. So, Sandy, um, 
So we were on Julie's show together. I'm going to say that that was about a year ago. About a year ago, probably like in the the late winter of 2016. But you had come into the storytelling scene before that. So why don't we talk? talk I, I talk a little bit about. Uh, who you are and where you're from and how you got to be like one of the most sought after, like seriously, like Sandy Marks is like the it girl of storytelling oh, today. That's really sweet. Well, I always wanted true. to be it something. Well, you are well, it. I started probably in the end of 2014. I took a workshop with my mentor, who I call Yoda, David Crabb. Mm, David Crabb. Probably one of the best, my favorite writers, storytellers, producer, you know, teacher. Gouda, I mean, uh, guru, I just, yeah. my Gouda cheese, he's my everything. He's a Gouda cheese. So he he's started, He's yeah. wrapped, in red, wrapped in red wax. He's, Ooh, he probably would like that. Eat him, <laughs> eat him, baby. And I absolutely adored him. And so he coached me. And this was after I'd taken a writing workshop, a comedy writing workshop with Sarah Barron, another one of my favorites. Oh. But she moved to London, and I haven't seen her in a really long time. She but used to host she, a lot of the moths when, when I was doing them back in the aughts. That's correct. And I used to go to see her at the moth. And that's what really started me on storytelling. And I shifted from wanting to write and perform comedy to storytelling. Oh. Because when I went and I saw some of my favorite storytellers, Adam Moth, at Housing Works, and I saw Adam Wade and Ophira, and Sarah was hosting, and that was it. It was like, take me to your leader. I never want to go home. This is the world that I want to be in, you know, however I can get into that world. So I worked really hard kind of crafting, writing, workshopping with David and a lot of our other friends that sat in his kitchen, basically. Um, and we, we were called the Crab Lab. And we used to sit there and just work out our stories. And this was after, because I'm much older than most other storytellers in our community, but I had spent a career as a talent agent, and specifically when you have that kind of job when you're in talent management, you don't have an opportunity to say much because you have to be a good listener. So I spent better part of 20 years just listening, aiding, helping, abetting, nursing actors to get their careers on track when I had so much I wanted to say and I had to keep my mouth shut. So when I retired from being that and I had raised my three children so I didn't have to listen to all their nonsense, I thought, okay, now I have a lot to say and I have not shut up since 2014. <laughs> so that's basically how it got started. I, I kind of have a feeling like you just don't shut up anywhere. No, never shut up. <laughs> but I want to give a little shout out to the crab. I love the crab lab. I think that's hysterical. So David Crab, is who is a big fixture in the storytelling community, has a fantastic book called Bad Kid. He lives in LA. He now. lives in LA now. And I've been trying to get him on this show. So if anybody has an in with Mr. Crab, okay. So uh, as a talent agent, you would have had to babysit an inordinate yes. amount of actors. So yes. who's more needy, actors or stand-ups? Oh. Or storytellers. Uh, I think the neediest are stand-up comedians. Yes, I think so, yeah. too. And it's, I, yeah. I also find it very interesting that a lot of people who come into storytelling, they start at stand-up, or they came from stand-up. That's correct. Like, even I tried to do stand-up years ago when I was in the surf reality collective unconscious days, and I just was not any good at it because I don't... I, I don't know. I just, I really, I just wasn't. I'll tell, I always sensed that that was the case when I represented comedians, which I did a lot of comedians. But when I was, in, I was part of the Boston Comedy Festival, Women's Boston Comedy Festival this year. Mm -hmm, but they do because they had a storytelling yes. division, which I don't think they're going to do again this year. But did oh, a lot of bad. shows with just stand-up comedians, and the difference that I noticed immediately was the women in the storytelling community seemed more open to listen 
and really kind of nurture each other. And I don't want to generalize, but a lot of the women I noticed in the comedy shows were so busy with their head down looking in their little notebooks and doing their own sets that they didn't pay as much close attention to the other people that were performing on the same bill with them, which I understand. It's just a different way of working. But I come from a way of working where it's almost like, you know, let's build a village and we'll all help each other out. You know, it's just a little different setup. And I think there's not quite as much internalizing amongst uh, the storytellers because um, I think to be a comedian, you have to have such a thick skin and have to be so willing to put yourself out there and sort of be rejected. And I think in storytelling, it's a little bit uh, kind of a kinder community. I think it's, it's hard to be a stand-up. I think it requires a certain set of skills that I don't think I have because I think my feelings would be hurt too often. I've, I've, hear, I've heard this again and again yeah. from people how storytelling is just kinder and gentler and more supportive. And here's another thing that I've heard. I know that this has happened, I'm not going to give specifics, but with stand-ups, jokes have been stolen. Yes. That's... And this has been going on for decades. Right. Stories, you cannot steal someone else's story. That's if true. If I tried to tell one of your stories or right. you tried to tell one of mine, it would be like, huh? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It, I, I, and I don't know why that is. It, uh, it, yeah. it comes from a, like a more personal or deeper place. I what will do you think? say, though, once I had an experience and I was sort of horrified where I described a person in a story, and I'll give the example, I said, this person just looked like shapes very large woman who looked like Ursula and Little Mermaid, and I said she was just shapes. Now, this was something that I decided to say, and I hadn't really thought that I might have ever heard it before, but about a month later, I was in my car listening to radio, you know, a radio station that had comedians, and I heard a comedian say that, and I was horrified thinking that, in like, subliminally, I must have heard it and not realized that I retained that, and so when I told it in my story, I felt like I was cheating, and I never used the word shapes again when I told that story. It's well, only just in a way to describe somebody's... Yeah. I think it well, was Dane Cook or somebody. No, nobody can own a, a word. But you it was know what such I mean? a graphic way of describing what someone yeah, looked I mean, like. Yeah, but, I, but, unless but I did it, feel at that moment. But unless it was word for word what he said, I think that you wouldn't have to worry. Probably you know what right. I mean? Because it was probably like a different context. But no, for sure. Like sometimes you absorb something yes. and I will write something down and I'll be like, wait a second, that sounds too much like blah, blah, blah. And you have to... Yes. You have to, you have to Figure you out. have to figure it but out. But you're right. Storytelling, what makes it so unique is that they are purely, you know, traditional stories that are true about one person's life. So nobody else has that story. That's why when people always ask me, how do you remember your story? I say, well, how could I not? It's my story. Yes. This yes. is something that I know because it happened. It's not something that I made up. It's not something that I'm recreating from somebody else. And I don't know about you, but I run into people at parties all the time who will say, oh my God, I have this great story you should tell. And then I always say, no, 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 that's your story. You have to tell it. That's not my story to tell. So that's what I love about storytelling, that it's so personal. Yeah, I, I, I just think that, that it's great. And also, um, going back to what you said about how it's your story, I always say that. I was like, it's not like you're doing a Shakespeare monologue right. or like Ibsen or something. It's like, it's your life. That's how, right. how can you go off on your own lines? Even if you just go off on like some crazy tangent, yeah. you could always find your way back because as long as it's true. That's right. See, that's the thing. Yeah. If it's a true story and it really happened, then you can't go too far off. Absolutely. Now, if you've like been like in, in a, what did the moth used to say? Uh, embellishment, a little embellishment is, is okay for dramatic purposes, but the story about you Obama and Gandhi in the spaceship eating 
eating eating space cakes? Probably not. Probably not. Probably not. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So how did um, I could tell by your accent that you, like me, are a native New Yorker? Yeah, baby, I'm so, a Queens girl. So um, I I'm sure that you did not start out your trajectory wanting to be a storyteller because stories didn't exist when no. when we were kids. So well, I was uh, hoping to be an actress and a dancer. So when so, I grew up in Queens, I studied. What neighborhood? What uh, hood? What hood? I'm from Forest Hills. Forest Hills. Yay! That's where the Ramones come from. I know. You didn't know them growing up, though, did you? No, they're a little older than I was. Okay. Also, and then Captain you're a little Kangaroo. older. Oh, Captain Kangaroo. And Simon and Garfunkel. I thought they were from Corona. No. Oh. But I did go to the Lemon Ice King in Corona oh, all wow. the time for my ices. But I did grow up in Queens, and all I wanted to do was be a Broadway dancer. Really? That's all I wanted to do. Oh, my God. So I auditioned for shows, and I actually have told a story um, that's um, actually on PBS right now about how I auditioned to be in a chorus line, and I almost got it, and I didn't. And it just was one of the most Wait, what happened? How, how did you almost get it? Well, I auditioned, and I got through like five or six cuts, and I spent a whole day there, and I was auditioning for the role of Morales. For the original one? like uh, with, Replacement with, cast. Oh, Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett, yeah, It was yeah, Michael yeah. Bennett, who I met, and uh, I was there to replace Priscilla Lopez. Oh. Now, your listeners don't know this, but I'm a very Jewy little girl from Queens. Nothing about me is really Priscilla Lopez. She may be little, but she's fierce. Fierce. So um, I auditioned, and I spent the whole day there, and Finally, they gave me sheet music and said, you must sing What I Did for Love, which is a big song that I would have had to sing in the show. And I wasn't allowed to change the key. And Michael Bennett sent me to the piano, and I went to sing it, and I really don't sing that well. Uh... And after that, I was done. And they said, thank you, but no thank you. And then, comically, Michael Bennett said, I'm actually casting another show I'd love for you to audition for next week, um, if you wouldn't mind coming back, because I really like you. And I said, great, what's the name of the show? Well, that show was called Dream Girls. And Dream what? Girls definitely didn't need this little white girl, because it's the story, basically, yeah. of the Supremes. Yeah. So I went and auditioned with Sherry Lee Ralph and all these other gorgeous women who actually did go on and do it, and I obviously did not get that job either, but it was very kind of him to be that kind. Wow. So I did have a career which was modest, doing smaller stuff, which was, you know, off-off-Broadway, and, you know, I was a professional cheerleader for a season for the New York Cosmos That was soccer a soccer team. team. Yeah, oh, my God. Yeah. Oh my God. That's, so that's going that. back in the day. That's like yeah. the 80s. Yeah, I worked with Pele wow. and Georgia Canale and all these cool kids. I'm old. I'm very old. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say old. I'm yeah. older. I'm old. But, yeah. you know, I, what I do now, because very often I do shows at places, the venues are very young, like the Black Cat or the Big Black Pussycat or mm -hmm. comedy clubs or big kind of arenas where people are used to going on their Tinder dates and expecting. Right you know, millennials up on stage. Yeah. So when I go on stage, sometimes I feel this awkward moment where there's not a giggle necessarily from the audience, but like, why is my Aunt Myrna up on the stage? Yeah, or like they're like, wait, wait maybe like a, a sign that's like, who is, who is she, she? and well, what, what is she going to say? Why is she going to yeah. be funny? So I always diffuse it by saying something right away, like, no, I am not Karen from HR. I am not your mother. You know, do not be confused. And I do that because it diffuses that moment where I acknowledge that they're acknowledging that I do not look like everybody else on the bill. Because I do do shows with comedians and other very young people. And as soon as I do that, I know I have them. Because they know I'm self-aware enough to know, yeah, I get it. I don't look like everybody else, but I'm here to take care of you folks, and I'm going to do it. And I really like the challenge of not surprising them about the kind of work that I'm doing. Did you go to a performance high school? No, I went to Forest Hills High School. Wow. Which actually was, back in the day, one of those high schools that was sort of like in glee. 
like we, it was, we didn't have football. We had this thing called sing where people put on shows. And that was more important to be good at singing and dancing in our high school than playing football, which was really unusual. Wow. So it was a very kind of uh, eccentric place to be back in the 70s. So um, going to high school in the, in the 70s, do you think that, what do you think would be the main differences that you found with your education then to what your, your daughters went through now? Well, all three recently. of my kids, because they were raised in, um, which is the story I'm going to tell in Ireland, they were raised in Scarsdale, which is, they put academics at a very high premium, as well as varsity sports and all that stuff, which is something I was really not accustomed to. But I was raised in a completely different atmosphere where we used to, my sister and I would stand in front of our apartment building and sports to us was taking a pink pincy pinky ball and hitting a penny in the middle, like who could hit the penny more times. A spalding. Times. A spalding or playing like kickball or, yeah. you know, or dodgeball. So it's a whole different world. But it's just a different trajectory. I never graduated college. And where where did still, you go? Um, I went to NYU after University of South Florida. Um, and I just ran out of money at NYU, and I really... It was expensive I would back have loved then. to have stayed, oh. but it was still... You know, and it was a hell of a lot cheaper than it is now, but I couldn't afford to stay, and I figured... You know, I was a part of... I was in the drama department there, studying with Lee Strasberg, which is all fine, but that wasn't going to necessarily get me work, spending all that money, and I thought, I've gotten what I need out of it, I'm just going to go it alone. Um, and I really don't have any regrets, because even after I stopped acting and I started working as a talent agent, it never really seemed to be necessary that I went back to get that last year of credits mm. to graduate college. Yeah, so what? So Sometimes I, I think having a degree is, is overrated. Yeah. You know, you can do, you can learn a lot and, and be a lot without it. Absolutely. It's just that mainstream society put so much emphasis on it. And I think it's also just to fuel university as a business, like the way pharmaceuticals are a business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my my assistant who was getting me coffee every day had a a bachelor's and a master's degree from Columbia. And I used to laugh because I was thinking, oh, my God, this poor guy. He's so sweet. And he has his master's, and he's working on his Ph.D., and he's getting me coffee. And he's probably owes about as much as it costs to buy a house. And, I mean, now he's, you know, off in another area himself. But it's just, I thought, it's all about EQ, not IQ. If you just have the right kind of... EQ, what is EQ? That's emotional quotient, Ah. not your IQ. So I might not be a genius when it comes to taking the SATs, but I know how to understand the human condition and people and what they need and then providing a service. And if you're really good at being a people person and act in the service of others with humility, you can become a successful adult. I always tell my children that. Be in the service of others with humility and the goods will come later. Like whatever it is that you need will come to you if you operate honestly, fairly, um, with kindness and respect for other people and work really hard and never complain. Nobody wants to hear you complain. Nobody and, wants to hear anybody complain. Yeah, and it's hard because they are a millennial generation. They're used to getting gold stars and, you know, most improved trophies. But, you know, I raised them to understand that that's not how I was raised. I had to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I got everything by working for it. No one handed me anything. And there's a great pleasure in that rather than just being given things. So it's true, it's because hard. I think that sometimes people don't appreciate what they get for free. That's right. You know, which is why I would always, I always try to, like, even if I'm running a show that is free, I always say suggest a donation, because right. I think that people don't appreciate what they don't pay for. That's right. You know, they, they, they take it for granted, and they kind of dismiss yeah. it and say that it's, like, less than. But, wow, so th- you're just like this... Um, 
Um, you're either like those Russian dolls that is like doll and doll and doll and doll and doll, or just like this beautiful red onion Aww. that just with all these layers. Yeah, there's so a lot of stuff in there. But when you um, stopped going to NYU, you had started auditioning on your own, right? right? Like going back to the to the yes. Dream Girls chorus line yes. story. And then so, I would cobble a living together by doing the craziest jobs, like oh, talk spring, about some of well, them. One Did of you my, used to do uh, toy fair? I used to do toy. I fair. I did toy fair in the '90s. Car fair, bike fair, boat fair. I did every fair. I even did this one fair for bicycles at the New York Coliseum when it was still there, where I had to dismantle and then reassemble a whole bicycle, and I had no idea what I was doing. I was just staring at bolts and nuts and parts and spokes and wheels while people were walking by, and I was like, my hair I thought was going to fall out because I didn't know what the heck Did I you was do doing. it properly? Did you make an abstract sculpture out of it? I was. <laughs> I just like pretended. I didn't know. Oh and then, oh, it was a toy show. I used to do all yeah. the shows. That doesn't even exist oh, anymore. Um, where Italy is now in Madison Park, where Shake Shack is, that used to be the toy building. Uh, it's on uh, uh, like where Broadway and Fifth Avenue right, meet right, by Twenty Third Street. Building. But there were two buildings, and they, one of them was all full of Christmas, That's all right. Christmas, all the time. That's right. And the other one was the toy building, and they would hire out-of-work actors, which is like every actor is like friggin' out-of-work, and right. for, for a season, and they would demonstrate toys. That's correct. The toy, I'll never forget, because yep. it gave me such a headache, it was called Swat Swat the Mosquito, and they handed me an electrified disc and a fly swatter, and I had to keep swatting it every time you hear the zzzz sound. Oh, my God. It was but they paid well. Really, it was $100 a day. Back then is a lot of money. I got $200 a day when yeah. I did it. Well, I, I did it in the late 90s. Yeah, inflation. Yeah. But it was yeah, a great true. job. And then the other job that I didn't like as much, but I did a lot, was spraying people with perfume on the main floor of Saks Fifth Avenue. Oh, that's a horrible job. Oh, I'm so thankless. Horrible job. And I used to joke because I worked a lot for Christian Dior, and the fragrance that was popular that they had me spray was poison. So I would try to have fun with it. And I would say, poison for Mother's Day. Or how about buying your wife some poison? And the only person who thought this was so funny was me. Nobody else. People were looking <laughs> at me like, funny. go away, shut up. Ooh. Don't spray me, I'm allergic. You know, people really. And the funny thing is, it's, the irony is now I can't be near perfume because it just bothers my lungs too much. Yeah. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I can't believe it. It's like karma. I was that horrible person spraying everybody with poison back in the early 80s, and now it's biting me in the tushy. Hey, if you worked for McDonald's, you probably couldn't eat McDonald's You're anymore. Probably right. You know? Probably right. So when did you get when did you get to the point with the auditioning and the small parts in theater that maybe this is not working out? I need to start thinking uh, about doing something else. Well, what happened else. was um, I used to take dance classes with the actor Peter Weller, who was the original RoboCop. Yes. And he's a really great dude. And when we were working and hanging out together, he one day said to me that he wanted me to meet his agent because he thought that it would be a really great opportunity. Now, I thought, he thought, I was like packing heat, like I was really talented and he wanted to help me out. But he, what he was saying is, no, I think you would make a wonderful agent. You have such a way about you. You're a great listener. You have all this patience. You should think about becoming an agent. And if I'll set you up with J. Michael Bloom, my agent, and I bet he can help you find a job. So that's exactly what I did, and I never turned back. And it was right on the heels of auditioning for a Broadway show called They're Playing Our Song. Oh. And Anita Gillette um, had these three voices, dancers, that would stand right behind her. Um, but they had to be the exact same size as Anita. And at the end of the audition, they took out a measuring tape, and they measured us in our stocking feet. Oh. And I would have gotten the job if I was a half an inch tall. 
taller. I was a half an inch too short. A half an inch? That half an inch sent me to a whole new career. Yeah. But I'll tell you something, that was the luckiest half an inch I ever didn't yeah. have. Yeah, so there was because, a happy accident then, yeah, I guess. Yeah, because I don't know how my career, I mean, it was never really that good. I was just sort of okay. And I don't think I would have had a long-term career because I wasn't that great. But I found my home when I learned how to be a talent agent because that was something I really loved. I was still around actors. I was still going to the theater and I was going to comedy shows every night. And I just loved it. Only now I felt that I had more power because I wasn't waiting for someone to like me. So how, but how did this transition happen? Your friend Peter Weller introduced, introduced you to his agent friend. So like, how, how did it start? You, I got hired right away. You so got hired right away. I went as an Michael. agent, you didn't even no, have no, to No, no, like, I had to be an assistant You'd first. be an assistant first. So okay. I met Michael, I became an assistant, and I just got really lucky because a year later, my boss uh, was moving to LA to work at ICM, a different agency. Right. And I basically got promoted to become a junior agent to work in that department. And my specialty was voiceovers, actors and actresses who do voiceovers for commercials. A lot of them were celebrities. And I just stayed, as that, that was my specialty my entire career, was working with actors who want to do voiceovers. Wow. Yeah, and I represented, you know, with my partners eventually. I went on my own and had my own agency, which was a very successful Which was agency. called? S-E-M-N-M, Schiffman, Ekman, Morrison, and Marks. Ooh. And we were in business a long time, and I was very proud of the work we did. And we had an amazing roster of clients like James Earl Jones and... Jason Alexander and lots of you know people that are very successful still, um, Deborah Messing, lots of wonderful people, and a lot of them like we represented practically the entire cast of Rent when they were still in workshop. Wow! So when they came in and said, "We don't know what this is really going to go, but we're really excited about it," and this is when Adam Pascal and Adina Menzel and all these wonderful actors would hang out in our offices. And it was a really exciting time to be doing it. So I have to ask this now, mm -hmm. in light of um, all the allegations that have been going on against certain men in the industry, have, were you privy to or did yes. you witness any yes. incidents? Yes. I actually I have a story that I tell where I was at a Christmas party uh, for my boss when I still worked for Michael. And one of our actors... This is in the 80s? This is in the okay. 80s. And it was I, a big, I, it's important like, to say it was what a, time yeah, it was. Yeah, it was in the 80s. It was a big, posh party at his townhouse on the Upper East Side, which, ironically, is right across the street from Bill Cosby's apartment. And, oh, uh, my God. I know. And I was in his house, and there were a lot of people there. And I went up to use the ladies' room, and I was only, like, 24 years old. I was still fresh-faced and very naive. And one of our clients who was a fairly successful actor, who was also well-known because he was a Klingon on the original Star Wars, which I didn't know what it was. I wasn't really a Star Wars fan. Star Trek? Star Trek, sorry, okay. not Star Wars. Star yeah. Trek, he was a Klingon. And the Klingon did what a Klingon did, which was he basically stuck his tongue down my throat Ew. and was all over me, clinging on. And I was so horrified, and I threw him off of me, and I tried to be polite, and I knew... The more upsetting part, after having his furry, wide-ass tongue down my throat, but the most upsetting part was knowing that my boss wasn't going to back me out. I knew he wouldn't. And I knew if I couldn't even tell anybody because nothing was going to go my way. I was so young in my career, and I was so afraid. And my boss also had a propensity for using his couch to have young men come visit him after hours just about every night. And everyone in our office knew it, and we all had a blind eye to it. This was so prevalent in everybody's offices, where I remember I was a receptionist in an ad agency one year, and I remember seeing art directors going into execs' offices and having sex on their lunch hour, and these were all married men. It was like madmen. I mean, that's what yes. it was like. And nobody said anything. And I, 
I'm as guilty as everybody else for not saying anything. But, you but know, I just felt it, I couldn't. But 30 years ago, like, if you would speak up, you would risk losing your job or That's you right. would risk being a pariah. That's because right. Because at that time, people would say, well, what, what's wrong with you? If you don't like it, don't look. That's right. It's not your business. Yeah, and like, what, um, if I had told Michael that this dude stuck his tongue down my throat, he would probably have said, oh, he's just being him, like boys will be boys attitude, which yeah. I never oh. believed in, I hate it, and I'm glad now that we're shining a light on it, but yeah. it was so prevalent every in every agency, everywhere, we all have stories. You know, there isn't a woman I know who hadn't been accosted at least once and did not say anything because they were afraid of losing their of job. Of course. Every- I mean, my boss used to make me have lunch with these disgusting old pigs. I couldn't stand these men who would be snapping their fingers at the waitresses and being really oh. lewd and rude, and they had, like, crumbs flying out of their mouth. You know, like, they were just beasts. And I would sit at these lunches, and I really felt like other people at the other tables were looking at me like I was somebody's whore. That's what I felt like. You know, here I was, this young girl, trying to do a good job, not get fired, just, you know, do right by my boss. And I always felt belittled, and I always felt like I was some young thing, that I was just there for somebody else's enjoyment. So I'm glad everybody's, like, we all say pussy fights back. It's We're all, like, yeah. no more. No well, more. Well, there's a shift coming. I can, yeah. You can feel it. You can, you can smell it in the air. Absolutely. I mean, there is a shift coming. It's going to be very interesting to see what, what the new year will bring. I'm saying the new year because I don't know when this episode is going to run yet, but we are recording this in early November of, of 2017, so we will see what happens. So you have you went from being a Broadway... A, uh, a wannabe. A bro- no, <laughs> you, I, can't, I don't want to say wannabe because you did, you did do some hopeful. show. I was a yeah, hopeful. A Broadway hopeful, right. a, a fresh face, aspirer. Yes, I was aspiring. You did, you did, you did some shows. You segued into talent. You ended up being a businesswoman owning your own agency. And how did this translate into you becoming a performer again? What cosmic shift happened to make you go back to... I guess the square one, or to the base, or to your performance route, to reclaim that part of your life uh, well, in um, your mid-years. Well, it actually was a bit of a dramatic ending. Um, about 17 years ago, when I was still an agent, I got sick, very sick. I had lupus. So when I got sick uh, with What lupus, exactly is lupus for people that don't know? It, well, I know it's, it's an a, autoimmune yeah, disease, it's an but autoimmune some people disease, don't know. And it manifests uh, with rheumatoid arthritis sometimes, terrible rashes and fevers, and I have trouble with my lungs and some other problems that are associated with it, and extreme exhaustion, and I couldn't possibly keep up the pace of my job because it meant not only working full-time but going out three or four nights a week, and I knew I wasn't doing a service to any of my clients because I could barely stand up straight, let alone show up during the day and at night. So at some point I knew it was time to sell my share, like my partnership to Mm. my other partners and to just sort of... And it was actually a great blessing in disguise because I spent the first dozen years not performing but really being home with my children and trying to get healthier Um, and my kids were still young then so it was a great opportunity for me to be able to be home with them and you know really be there for them in middle school and in high school and um, am I correct in in saying that lupus is a a type of disease that can be managed yes to a certain extent it can be managed usually happens I get flares and then I get sicker than I'm not and then when I have a flare I just stay home and hide under my bed but it can be managed I have a wonderful doctor and I had to take a lot of medication. So it's, it's kind of the thing where you look fine 
but you really not. It's like one of those invisible ailments. I always say I'm like the New York subway system. I might look like I'm running, but the infrastructure is not. And and it's amazing how these these types of diseases are also now having a light shown on them for people to have recognition and, and to understand what it is to have this condition. A condition like this, because right. like if, if, you, if you said you had type one diabetes, nobody would blink an eye, because right. you could you could look fine and have type one diabetes, and you could be dead in ten minutes if your sugar goes woo woo, and right. nobody questions the validity of that. Right. But right. there are lupus, and there are other autoimmune conditions where people say, well, you don't look sick, right. and like how do you answer people like that? Um, usually, I say thank you. Yeah, and I always say that's you know, like better living through chemistry and really expensive hair and makeup products. Yeah, because like the other answer is fuck you, yeah. and then that's that starts. A, and the other thing the I say a lot you, is uh, yeah. I, the other thing I usually say when people say that is, well, thank God, because how I look is all that matters is a joke to diffuse it, and then well, people will laugh. Or you could it. do the thing from Saturday Night Live back in the eighties. It's better to look good than to yes, feel good, right, darling. And darling. you look yes, my marvelous. My favorite Billy Crystal. That's right. Oh my yeah, God! Yeah, 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 yeah. so funny. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay, so. What was the turning point that got you back into performing? I well, think it really after was you were the, feeling better, you, I you, you to became feel, manageable? Yeah, I felt manageable. And I also, my last child was off at college. Uh, oh, empty nest syndrome. So I was on my own. I had no excuses. I had no distractions. And I've always wanted to, to do more writing, and especially in comedy. And, and honestly, if I had the courage when I was 25 to be a comedian, I would have tried it. But I just was way too afraid to do that. It just seemed too frightening. Isn't this something that's so fear? We, we, we have so much fear in our life. But I, think I don't that know. I also now, even still, I really believe, because I don't really have much fear now doing what I'm doing, but there's an expectation in comedy that you have to hit right away, like um, your jokes. They have yes, to, you, you know, need to have a laugh every 20 seconds exactly. or every 15 like seconds. The beats have to come really quickly. Yeah. But when you do storytelling, long or short form, it's completely different because right. the expectation is people have patience. Yes, well, they're the, going to wait for what you are saying. In stories, the humor comes out of the situation. Correct. It comes out of the characters. It comes out of pauses. It comes out of uses in language. It's not set up punchline, set up punchline, Correct. set up punchline. Exactly. Exactly. Those are the two main differences between a, a comedic story can be just as side-splitting as a stand-up routine, Absolutely. but there's no, and there can be jokes in it, but it's not the barrage of jokes. Exactly. It's not like every two sentences has to, has to be a joke. That's exactly And a segue. Right. Yeah. 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 So and I spent a solid year working on material before I even got up. Because really? I really came from the school of be prepared. You know, mm. it's like... Do anything well, you got to be prepared to do it. And I also, I used to joke about it, but I treated it like my life depended on it because it kind of does. It's like, this is something that gives me such joy now, but I wasn't willing to get up and do it until I felt I really had something to say. So I heard a little birdie tell me that you have a story that you're going to share for us. Yeah, I do. It's a very water-relatable one. All right, guys, strap in. So I'm standing on the edge of an Olympic-sized swimming pool, and now to my right is Kate, and she's wearing a red shiny Speedo, and her hair is one of those high blondie ponytail. She looks like an adult version of like uh, like li- My Little Pony or something. She's perfect. And then on my left is a woman named, I swear I'm not making this up, her name was uh, not Pepper, not Piper, but it was... Um, Well, we're going to call her Pepper for this story because I don't want her to know I'm talking about her. And Pepper, whose real name is Cricket, now that I've said it, Cricket looks like that's all she ingests because she's so skinny and tall. And I'm in the middle, and I look ridiculous. I'm wearing one of those old-school tankinis that women who've had a lot of children wear. But I'm not fooling anybody. It's like the Eileen Fisher of bathing suits. I mean, I just look like a pig. I don't look 
well. I don't feel happy. But the worst part is I don't know how to swim. And I'm on this diving platform. I've never jumped into a body of water. And the only reason I'm there is because we are at the Scarsdale Golf Club mother-daughter swim meet. And my twin girls, who were nine years old at the time, decided it would be a really good idea to enter us into this competition. Now, I told them I don't know how to swim. I told them I don't want to do this. But when you have nine-year-old daughters, they believe you can do anything because you're their mother. Now, this was something that really was truthfully biting me in the ass because it's like in the category, be careful what you wish for. Because I grew up, as I mentioned earlier, I had no money. We were broke. I lived in Queens. And the only real time I would be at a beach club was sort of like that old movie Flamingo Kid when my mother would take me to a pool that sort of faced the Long Island Expressway. It wasn't exactly very luxurious and nobody swam back then. They would read Harold Robbins novels, read People magazine, sit on a chair. Jewish people back in those days didn't jump into bodies of water. It's just not something we did. So when I got older and more successful as an adult and worked really hard, I got super lucky and also married pretty well, and we decided to raise our kids in a fairly affluent neighborhood called Scarsdale, which I had no understanding, but my husband kept saying, oh, they have great schools, we'll have a backyard, but truthfully, it was, I liked the name Scarsdale, it sounded fancy, I thought, oh, it's like being George Jefferson, we are moving on up, so we moved there, but I know I don't fit in, I don't have any friends, I work full time, the only women I hang out with are on the train with me, we call each other the train ladies, because I work full time, so I'm thinking, I've got these young kids, and I need to get into relationships with them for my kids' sake, because I'm part of a neighborhood now. How will I do it? Well, I figure I better join a club. So what do I do? I pick the only club that really doesn't like Jewish people, because I'm thinking I want to make the stakes really high, because I'm crazy. And I'm thinking I want to join a club that really doesn't want me, because I feel like I've accomplished something. I'm not really thinking it through. So you have to do letters of recommendation, and you get referrals, and then they go to these cocktail parties. And I'm starting this ball rolling. My husband's not really that on board, but he's like, all right, whatever. So we go to like a cocktail party to see if I can join the club. And all the women are dressed in this designer, Lily Pulitzer. It's like very colorful and fancy. And I look like Gollum in a sundress. I just don't fit in. But I'm still hanging in there. And somehow, and I do not know why, they let us into this club. I think maybe they're doing it as a social experiment to let this loud, Jewy woman in their club. So we join. And now my kids and I are going there all the time. And it's, again, it's like, what the hell was I thinking? I don't even like these people. Why am I here? The men all wear, like, lime green golf pants, and they all have those ruddy, like, alcoholic faces from too much booze and and with the whale belts, and the women are all playing golf. I don't play golf. I don't do any of that. And now here we are. We're in this race, which I don't know what to do because I cannot swim. And my daughters are at the other end waiting. It's a relay. I'm supposed to go in the water, swim to the other side of this huge pool, and then the girls will swim the other way. Now all the kids are lined up. All the adults like Cricket and Kate and all these other women that look really athletic with their Michelle Obama arms are standing there and me. And the lifeguard, he blows his whistle and he yells go and they all like cut through the water like butter And I don't want to do that, so I slide into the pool, like scraping my back on this cement at the back of the pool, and I just start treading 
water, dog paddling, I'm creating like a tsunami around me. So I'm, the currents, I'm hoping will slow down the other women. This not, they're going fast, they're moving. And my kids, meanwhile, those poor stupid children, they're yelling, come on, mom, you can do it. They were so hopeful at their mother. I couldn't get very far. So I straddled those buoys that are like the separate the lanes. I just straddle it just to catch my breath and decide what my next move is going to be. Meanwhile, I see all the nine-year-olds swimming back because they're already at the next leg of the race, and I haven't gotten very far. So I think, okay, just do this, do this. Now, I keep looking around. I'm looking behind me. I'm looking at the sides. I'm like, ah. And then finally, I just do the best I can, like hot-footing it across. It takes forever. And my daughters, God bless these little girls, they're still cheering, saying, you can do it, Mom, you can do it. By the time I get to their side, that race is over. Every other child has made it back twice. They're already taking down the sign. They're already having their mimosas and their scotch and sodas. And my girls, they jump in the pool. They do their lap because that's a race. And I taught them to play fair. The sweet, dumb, but sweet kids. And I got out of that pool exhausted. And I looked at them. And all I could think about is I have to stop looking around and looking behind me and looking at everybody else because everything I need is right in front of me. I belong with these children, not with these other people at this fancy country club, and that's good enough. Oh my God, uh. Sandy, I hope that um, stories and you stay together forever. Oh, forever. Thank you, I, 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 I just love that um, your, your entire story is just like, like one big thing of hope. One door it, it, closes, hope. Another one opens, and sometimes, and sometimes you have to kick it. That's right. You have to, you right. have to kick it. Yeah. 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 My, my, one of my abuelas, my grandmothers, used to say, "Well, you know that saying, God helps those who help themselves. That means that you do everything you can to open the door, and when, you, when you're just about to give up, then then a breath comes and the door opens the rest of the way. That's but you have right. to put the effort in." And the other thing that I always tell people that I meet along the way, and I've made so many new friends in the last three years, is we all are here together and we need to pull each other up. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Absolutely, and it yeah. makes me feel I mean, better. Every time I see somebody yeah. doing really well, I think good for good them. For them. Good it's for them, it's their time, yes. because they have their thing and you have your thing, Absolutely. and your thing will come when yeah. it's your time. All of us are individuals, yeah. and we all deserve to yeah. give each other the most yes. we can give to help each other, because yeah. it raises all of us up. Now, on that note, um, this is the question I ask everybody at, at, the end, at the end of the interview. If you could say one thing to that child who is living in maybe the marginal neighborhood in the marginal town mm -hmm. on the wrong, wrong side of the tracks in the basement apartment, in the top floor of the tenement walk up, in, in, on the farm, some anywhere where they feel marginalized and less than and they don't believe that, they, they wonder how are they going to get out and do the thing that's been put inside of them that everybody else is telling them that they're not good enough for. Well, what would you tell them? I would tell them, because I had a lot of that myself, is that if you believe in yourself and there's one thing, learn to do one thing really well that you really love, and as I said, do it like your life depends on it. And if you work really hard and find mentors and find one mentor, it doesn't have to be five, it doesn't have to be three, there's a way to get out. There's a way to build yourself in the right direction. And it's baby steps. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, we all see a lot of stuff on, you know, the Internet and on television where you think people become successes overnight. Nine out of time of those stories, those people work for years. Overnight success after 20 years. That's right. Years before they became successful. And if you believe enough that you have a talent or you want to learn a craft, it's about learning the craft and 
learn by working really hard. See this, kids? Listen up. Yes. Listen to your Titi Shell and your Titi Sandy. Yay! Mira, Titi Sandy. All right, Sandy, thank you for being oh, on Fish Out of Agua.
We're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Earth, Wind, and Fire with Into the Stone from their I Am album in 1979. Wow, that was such an inspirational story from Sandy Marks. I'm so glad that um, she got to be on the air. And I'm so glad to let you know that this show is going to continue through the rest of this year and beyond. And if you really like this show or any other defined shows on Radio Free Brooklyn, please consider sponsoring us. Just go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or .com and look for the Donate tab and scroll down and do what it says. And you can support living artists. Yes, support living artists. So we're going to close this episode with um, another one of um, Sandy's picks from Jennifer Hudson. And Dream Girls in 2006, one of the shows that she auditioned for with And I Am Telling You, I'm Not Going. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll see you next week. Woohoo! Ciao, kids! You're the best man I'll ever know. There's no way I can ever go, no, no, there's no way, no, 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 no way, I'm living without you, I'm not living without you, I don't wanna